on June the 18th, 2015. The History Channel premiered a brand new show simply entitled, Alone. It is touted by the History Channel as, quote, the most intense survival series on television. No camera crews, no gimmicks. It is the ultimate test of human will, unquote. How many of you have seen that show alone or part of it? Okay, then you know the intensity of it. You know the reality of their statement. Wikipedia would go on to further say of the television series alone, which also serves as the title of our sermon this morning. Wikipedia would say, it follows the self-documented daily struggles of 10 individuals as they survive alone in the wilderness for as long as possible, using a limited amount of survival equipment with the exception of medical check-ins, the participants are isolated from each other and all other humans. If you watch the show, you know that they have their own cameras and it's not a camera crew filming them. They are literally alone except for these occasional, I don't know if they're once a month or, or when they are, but uh, uh, health checkups. Wikipedia goes on, they may tap out at any time or be removed due to failing a medical check-in. The contestant who remains the longest wins a grand prize of $500,000. The seasons have been filmed across a range of remote locations, usually on indigenous controlled lands, including Northern Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Nahuel Hopi National Park in Argentinian Patagonia, in northern Mongolia, the Great Slave Lake in the Northwest Territories, and Chilco Lake in interior British Columbia. Very remote, often very cold um, places. And again, if you've ever watched that show alone, then you know that the only thing that rivals their physical fight for survival is their mental fight for survival. Some of those folks trying to trap their own food and going days without calories and doing the best they can, some of them lose 10, 20, 30, 35 pounds. It's, it's amazing their, their physical struggle, their physical fight for survival. But again, if you've watched that show, you know that their mental fight for survival rivals that, being totally isolated from every other human being on the planet everybody for weeks and months on end can do strange things to the human psyche totally isolated for months on end <laughs> or as we learned from bob deffenbar at green valley bible camp it can do things to the human psyche which one might call wonky <laughs> and and as i as i thought about that for those of you that have seen the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks and, and all of the uh, conversations that he had with his torn volleyball friend Wilson, you know it can do wonky things to the human mind. But all humor aside, alone 
can be one of the most dangerous, mind-altering, reality-warping and faith-confusing places in all the world to be. Being that alone can alter your mind. It, it can make you think things that aren't true. It can, it can confuse your faith. It can be not only dangerous, it can be deadly. And because of it, that is one of the places that Satan wants to either get you to or get you to believe that you are on a daily basis. Remember, God is good all the time. God is good. God wants you happy. God's given you everything, given you his word. God's given you his son. He's given you everything. Satan is out for one thing. He wants to destroy you. That's it. He wants to destroy everything that God created that's good. And so, because alone is such a, a, a faith-confusing, mind-warping place at times because it is so dangerous, Satan wants to either get you there or at least make you think you are. And, and, I, and, I, and I began considering this after last week's lesson on 1 Kings chapter 18 on Elijah. And you'll recall, and you can go ahead and be turning there to 1 Kings 18 with me if you would. We're going to get there in a moment. But you'll recall in the story of Elijah how went up onto the mountain and had this great victory over Ahab and the false prophets of Baal, and they put, you know, hundreds of them to death. And, but, but shortly in the aftermath of that, he takes off and goes or runs for his life. He became alone. But here's the thing, or one of the things I want us to consider. In his great and overwhelming discouragement, and again, we talked about this at length last week, in that discouragement, not only did he isolate from and put distance between himself and his problem, Jezebel, but he also isolated and put distance between himself and all of those faithful people of God who could have potentially surrounded him, supported him, and helped comfort him. He put distance between himself and them too. For example, Elijah in his great personal heartache, in his great discouragement, in his great grief, not only put distance between himself and his problem Jezebel, he also put distance between himself and Obadiah, who feared the Lord greatly and had from his youth, 1 Kings 18, verses 3 and 12. In his great heartache and discouragement, he also isolated and put distance between himself and the hundred faithful prophets whom Obadiah had hidden in caves, 1 Kings 18, 4 and 13. Not only that, but he also isolated himself from the people of Israel who had all turned back to God and helped him to seize and execute all of Jezebel's false prophets. 1 Kings 18, verses 19 and 20, 39 and 40. He not only isolated himself from them in his attempt to isolate himself or get away from Jezebel, but there was another as well. 
He even isolated himself away from and did not seek the support of King Jehoshaphat of Judah. Now, do you remember who Jehoshaphat was? Jehoshaphat was a good king. Jehoshaphat, it says in 2 Chronicles 17, 3 and 4, that the Lord was with him because he walked in the ways of his father David, not seeking the Baals, but the God of his father and walking in his commandments. That was King Jehoshaphat of Judah. It also says in 2 Chronicles 17 and verse 6 that Jehoshaphat was one whose heart took delight in the ways of the Lord and goes on in 2 Chronicles 22.9 to say he sought the Lord with all of his heart and, and we see that as we read through his entire 25-year reign in 2 Chronicles 17.1 through 21.3. We see that the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, was, was a good man. He feared the Lord. He tried to do what was right. So, so Ahab, uh, not Ahab, Elijah, very possibly, if he had just run to the king of Judah, may have found protection and solace, but he didn't. Because I, Elijah was so isolated and found himself physically alone as we read how he took off for that cave, because he found himself physically alone, it drove him even deeper into falsely convincing himself that he was spiritually alone too. Don't miss this. Because he was physically alone, it got him to falsely think that he was a lot more spiritually alone than he actually was, as we see in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 10, 14, and 18. For example, I want us to take a little bit closer look right here at 1 Kings 19 and verse 10 and see how his physical aloneness caused him to get kind of a false or, or misleading or wonky sense of his spiritual aloneness. Look at verse 10. As he's alone, he says to God, verse 10, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. This was his view. This is what he told God. He said, God said, why are you here? And he said, this is why I'm here. But have you ever stopped to consider that the way he saw it wasn't exactly the way it was? The way Elijah perceived it as he talked to God, in his being by himself, wasn't exactly the way it was. Let, let me break down the verse for you, and I'll, I'll show you this. He said, they have forsaken your covenant. Now, that's true. They had. But what he conveniently forgot, or in his grief forgot, or overlooked was that they had just turned their hearts back to God. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 37 through 39. They just turned their hearts back to God. He says in verse 10 of chapter 19 again. They have torn down your altars. Well, it's true they had, but at the same time, they had also seen the altar of the Lord repaired and his power and presence proven upon it to the point that the entire nation had confessed and bowed down to God as Lord again in chapter 18, verses 30 through 39. But you see, as he was alone, and this, 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 
all of the dismalness and the heartache and the disappointment and the frustration began to load him down and he, and he forgot some of this other good stuff. Look, look at what else he says. It's, it's not quite accurate. He says, they have killed your prophets with a sword. Now that's true, they had, they had. But Elijah seems to have forgotten or overlooked or, or, or doesn't point out here in his discouragement that they have also just recently returned to God and killed the prophets of Baal with a sword. Somehow or other that got left out of his equation. 1 Kings 18 and verse 40. And then he makes a statement that, that he's got to know in his heart isn't true, but in his discouragement, it's all he can see. He said, I alone am left. No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. Obadiah, as we've talked about, was a man of God, right? King Jehoshaphat of Judah, who was still alive, was a man of God. And there were a hundred prophets in those two caves that Obadiah had saved. And Elijah knew about them because Obadiah had told him. So he knew he wasn't, in reality, literally, he knew he was not the only man of God left. But he said, I alone am left. You see how sometimes in your discouragement and physical aloneness, you can kind of get a little bit different sense of things than what they actually are because your mind, you feed on that discouragement and you, 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 you begin to look at only that and, and it, it, can, it can play tricks with you as to what the reality of the situation is. He, he knew he wasn't the only one for the reasons we've cited. And he says, and they seek to take my life. And, and no, um, the entire nation of the children of Israel weren't seeking to take his life. If they had wanted to take his life, could they have done it when they were all up on top of that mountain and it was just him standing alone? Could they have done it? If they'd have wanted him, could they have done away with him? Could they have done away with him when he said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, and they all went down to the brook Kidron and killed them? Could they have put a knife through Elijah if they'd have wanted to? Of course they could have. So it wasn't the entire nation, and that's what he's talking about. He says, the children of Israel have done these things and they seek to take my life. No, no, no. The problem was bigger in his mind than it was in reality. In his mind, he's talking about the nation that wanted to kill him. And it was actually at this point only Jezebel because most of the nation turned back to God. Do you see where I'm going with this? Do you see how sometimes in your aloneness you can, you can focus on things that will give you a sense that, that isn't quite accurate, just like on the show, the, the mental struggle for survival is sometimes as hard as the physical. The bottom line is that being physically alone certainly provides a very fertile ground at the least for Satan to get into your mind and make you feel that you are a lot more isolated and alone than you really are. In a number of areas, especially spiritually, especially spiritually. And this is true even for as great and faithful and strong a servant as Elijah. We'd all agree that Elijah was a very strong servant of God, wouldn't we? After what he had just done, absolutely. I mean, wow, okay? Let me tell you how, let me tell you how great Elijah was. We already know, of course, from the, the sermon last week and the scripture, but just consider these two points. There's only two people, two people, two people in all of human history that are recorded as being taken to heaven without tasting death. Elijah was one of them. There were only two people, just two, 
Out of everybody, out of all the great and faithful prophets and servants of God, there were only two people that had the honor and the privilege of showing up on what we commonly refer to as the Mount of Transfiguration to encourage our Lord and Savior and remind him of what he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. One of them was Moses and the other one was Elijah. Elijah was an incredible man of God. The honors that were bestowed him were incredible. And so my point this morning, brethren, listen. If even as great a servant of God as Elijah could be led to feel or think because of his physical aloneness that he was a lot more spiritually alone than he really was. If God, if, if, if it could happen to that man of God, it could happen to anybody. No matter how strong, how faithful, how many victories for God they've had. If it could happen to him, and it did, then it could happen to anyone this feeling of I'm a lot more alone than I really am can get into your head. Now, as we kind of move on with the lesson here, I know what I'm about to say is in a different context than necessarily the one we're talking about, but I still think it applies. One of the eternal truths that God had recorded for our benefit from the very beginning was that it is not good for man to be alone. I realize the context I said a little different. He's about to create a female there. I understand that. But it's still a true statement, Genesis 2.18, that it is not good that man should be alone. And as I consider what happened to Elijah and how he began to feel a lot more alone, I alone am left. No, God said, I got 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah in his physical aloneness and I consider what happened in his own mind as to what his situation was, even though it wasn't totally accurate. I think I know why God said it's not good that man should be alone. Aloneness can get to you. Physical aloneness can, can play tricks in your head. When you're, we're alone, we can begin to think that we're all alone, that we're the only one, and that our particular situation is completely hopeless, and it's not. Let me tell you of a vicious cycle. We all know of vicious cycles in our lives. Try this one on. The more alone we are physically, and I'm basing going back to Elijah here, the more alone we are physically, the more alone we feel mentally and spiritually. And again, 1 Kings 19.10 to me proves that. And the more alone we feel mentally and spiritually, the more depressed we get. The more depressed we get, the more ready to give up we are. The more ready to give up we are, the more gleeful Satan gets. And the more gleeful Satan gets, the more alone he seeks to make us feel. And the more alone we feel, you get the drill? Just like flushing a toilet, there we go. Have you ever considered how many times in scripture that God wanted to remind somebody that God that God wanted to remind somebody that they were not as alone as they might have been tempted to think they were. If, if you read through your Bible with that in mind, it will absolutely amaze you. 
How many times in scripture did God just need for somebody to know they were not as alone as they thought they were? We know here, let me give you just a few examples and we could go on a long time, but I won't. We know about 1 Kings 19:18. Elijah was not as alone, left alone as he thought he was. What about the servant of Elisha, Elijah's predecessor, uh, successor, that's the word I want. In 2 Kings 6, turn over there. The servant of Elijah's successor, Elisha, needed a reminder that he wasn't as alone as he thought he was. In 2 Kings chapter 6, the king of Syria is making war against the king of Israel. But everywhere that the king of Syria goes, the king of Israel knows he's coming because Elijah knows where the king of Syria is. And so the king of Syria gets all upset and he wants to, to go and take care of Elijah. He wants to go get him. So they find out where he is in Dothan. Therefore, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 14, therefore he, that is the king of Syria, sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? The servant is all wound up because all around the, the town there's this incredible army, and it's just, it's just Elisha and, his, and this servant. The servant goes out, and he's terrified. He says, Look at all these Look at all these people. What are we going to do? Elisha says, don't fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So the Syrians came down to him. Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. You see, that young man, that servant of God, he didn't have his eyes open. He didn't know. He thought he was a lot more alone than he was. But the man of God prayed, and he says, God, help open his eyes that he can understand we're not as alone we're not as as powerless as it appears and and i just i think sometimes that we need to pray for each other both as a group and individuals help my brother help my sister to realize they're not alone they're not alone i know the struggle's great i know it's hard i know it looks like it's a terror but they're not alone and they need to know that and we need to pray for each other when the great multitude came against the king and the people of Judah in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and King Jehoshaphat cried out in prayer, saying, We have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you, right there in 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 12. You know what God does? God responds by reminding them that they are most definitely not alone. Listening, uh, uh, saying in verse 15, listen all of you Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, don't be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude. The battle's not yours but God's. God said, I'm here, don't forget, I'm here. You need your eyes open, you're not alone in this. I'm right here. You're not alone. 
You may think you're alone. It may seem overwhelming. The discouragement may be this, this vast problem. You may be outnumbered. You may be overwhelmed. You may be discouraged. But God said, hey, you're not as alone as you think you are. I'm right here with you. Do we need that some days? I need that some days. We need our eyes open. While many more could be mentioned in the Old Testament, same thing as we move on into the New. Just our moving into the New Testament shows us that it's not good to be alone. As, as, we, as we begin the very first few chapters, verses of the New Testament, what do we find? God, we find, wanting to make sure we know that we're not alone. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, she's going to have a, a child, and she's going to name the child Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. That's how the New Testament starts. God, you are not alone. I'm coming. The boy's name is to be God with us. You are not alone. And, and that just sets the tone for the whole New Testament. And, and we continue as we, as we read through the New Testament. We see God seeking to remind those who might have been tempted to think they were alone and therefore to exacerbate their downhill spiral into greater depths of discouragement that they're not alone. And God wants you to know you're not alone. And, and again, I'm just going to mention just a brief few. And did you know, did you know that even Jesus Christ was one of those? we got a reminder. In his worst trial, you're not alone. Even Jesus. There is, of course, the account in, in Luke 9, verses 28 through 31, where Moses and Elijah, as I mentioned earlier, appeared to Jesus in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, verse 31 of Luke chapter 9, on the mountain as he prayed. Now, I know that the text does not say, and God sent him Moses and Elijah to remind him he wasn't alone, but what do you think it did? Moses and Elijah came to Jesus as he prayed. They appeared in glory to discuss with him, speak of his decease, speak of his death. Jesus needed to remember that there was a purpose here and that he wasn't alone. In John 14, verses 18 through 23, as we've covered in the adult class over the recent months, Jesus explained to his disciples the night before he was crucified. He said, I will not leave you as orphans or alone, if you, if you will. I will not leave you by yourselves. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you and I will live within you. I'm not going to leave you alone. Something that without the proper understanding of, even his apostles would soon find themselves feeling hopeless, didn't they? After his crucifixion, his own apostles found themselves feeling hopeless, discouraged, overwhelmed, isolated. They were locked behind closed doors for fear of the Jews, John tells us. And, and, and the thing that gets to me here the parallel that, that comes to my mind 
It was right after that great victory on Mount Carmel that Elijah went to the mountaintop right, into, right, right off the cliff, right into the valley, didn't he? It was after that great victory on Mount Calvary that Jesus had that his disciples went right into the depths of discouragement. The parallels are unmissable. But he wanted them to know, I'm not going to leave you there. I'm not going to leave you alone. During the course of those events of his praying and arrest and crucifixion, God sent an angel from heaven to strengthen and encourage his only begotten son, reminding him once again that he was not alone as he prayed before his crucifixion in Luke chapter 22, verses 43 through 44. And again, not leaving them alone was something he had told his disciples earlier that evening, John 16, 32. Then the angel comes and reminds him of the same thing. What a joy, what an encouragement, even in the midst of the worst trial that has ever been suffered on this planet, when Jesus Christ our Lord was being crucified. What a joy it must have been for him That reminder that he wasn't all alone in his mission, that he was doing something that counted when that one thief on the cross, that one thief on the cross believed him, trusted him. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. All is not lost. There's, there's still those who believe. There's still those not alone. And we know that even when Jesus was commanding his apostles to go and teach and preach the gospel, knowing, knowing that all but one of them were going to be martyred, knowing the trials they were going to face, knowing the life and death, wrath and hate they were going to bring down on themselves from an angry world, knowing all of that, what did Jesus tell them just before he went back to heaven? What did he tell them? He told them in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am what? I am with you. Always. It, it doesn't matter if when you go out and preach, they stone you. It doesn't matter if they don't listen. Don't get discouraged. You go and you teach the gospel and you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I am with you always. I will not leave you alone. Brethren, when you go out and you talk to somebody about Jesus Christ and they reject what you have to say, you do not need to feel alone because Jesus said he'd be right there with you. And if you feel alone when you do that and you feel discouraged when you do that, when you teach the truth and somebody doesn't accept it, then you need to open your eyes as to who's standing there with you. Because it's not you that they're rejecting, it's him as Lord. The Apostle Paul was much like Elijah in that after several greatly encouraging events and victories, even the Apostle Paul, we talk about this great apostle all the time and all these people that, that he baptized and, and we talk about how, what a powerful preacher he was and what a powerful writer he was. Listen, do you know that Paul needed to be reminded that he wasn't the only one? 
I'll just give you the reference, you know of it. In Acts 18, 1 through 11, God had to remind Paul that he was not as alone as he might have thought he was in Corinth, that God had many people in that city, and that Paul just needed to keep on doing what the Lord had called him to do. Sound like Elijah, doesn't it? I got 7,000 have not, not bowed the knee to Baal, so you just go and do what I'm telling you to do. Same thing, basically, that Paul was told in Acts 18. In Acts 18. I have many people in this city keep on preaching. Paul also came to understand that even when no other brethren stood with him, God did. 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17. And the reason I bring all of these folks up is, brethren, the fact is that even the absolute greatest of God's servants, and even in the aftermath of some of their greatest victories and accomplishments for God, can sometimes lose sight of the fact, they can lose sight of the real overall picture and in their discouragement, go downhill into an ever-deepening well of depression, discouragement, and a lot of that happens when they are forced for whatever reason to start spending more and more time physically alone, which can turn into a false but overwhelming feeling of being much more spiritually alone than they actually are, and brethren, that ain't true. As I said last week, you might be the only Christian or member of the Lord's Church in your entire class at college or school. You might be the only Christian in your entire place of employment. You might be the only Christian in your entire family or social circle, and you may at times begin to feel alone. You might be one of those faithful servants of God, one of those faithful brethren whose circumstances currently demand that you spend a lot of time physically alone or isolated right now. Maybe due to the loss of a spouse, maybe due to family issues, maybe due to health and safety concerns, or any one of a hundred other reasons, you may have to be physically alone right now. You might even be one of those brethren who's going through something something that is overwhelming, that is discouraging to you, and you think, or let Satan convince you, I'm the only one who's ever gone through this. I'm the only one who can understand this. And so, you keep it to yourself. You keep it bottled up inside. You keep letting it beat you right into the ground. When God has told your brothers and sisters to help you bear your burdens, but you don't because you're convinced that even though you're not physically alone, you're, you're all alone in this situation. Nobody would understand, you know. And Satan just keeps it on. Hey, no, but don't tell anybody. Don't share that burden. You're all alone in this. I'm reminded that even Jesus Christ needed help carrying his cross. Is that right? Know what the Bible says? Even Jesus needed help. So no matter which one of those scenarios is you that you may feel spiritually alone because you're having to be physically alone right now, any one of those, or, or maybe even Satan's got you feeling psychologically alone, we'll put it in those terms. I am here to tell you right now that just because 
you're isolated in some way. Just because you may be physically alone or isolated does not mean that you are alone in any other way and especially spiritually. Amen, church? You're not alone. You may be physically alone, you may have to be, but you don't have to be spiritually alone. You don't have to be psychologically isolated. You have got a family that God put together to help you. You are not alone. And don't you ever let Satan tempt you to think otherwise because all Satan's trying to do is take you down. Same way Jezebel was Elijah. And poor Elijah, when he ran, when he went for his life, God straightened him out. Yeah, God can cause all things to work for good. But, but in his physical isolation, he felt so isolated in so many other ways. I am here to tell you that you are a vital member of the body of Christ. Whether you're sitting at home because you've got to right now and praise God for you, you're part of this church. Everybody here, no matter what you're psychologically going through, you are part of the body of Jesus Christ. You have got to understand that. You are part of a spiritual group of brothers and sisters who love you, who want you, who need you, who pray for you, and who want to help you bear your burden. They want you to know that you are not alone and they are with you every step of the way. The church in the first century was like this. I want you to look at me what Paul wrote in Philippians 1. And this is us. We claim to be the church of the first century. Well, this is just as important as baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. Paul, even, even physically alone, was not alone spiritually. He was not alone in the body, even though he was physically isolated. Look what he says in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. He said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. He's under house arrest. He is separated from these people. They are not in the same place together. But boy, he loved them. Boy, he knew he wasn't alone. Just, just, just look at how you can see this just gushing from here. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy for your fellowship. They're in fellowship. In the gospel, from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Do you see it? Tell me, you see it? Paul said, I'm here and I'm alone and I'm struggling, but I know I ain't alone. I've got y'all in my heart. And I pray for you, and it's such a joy I don't worry about all this stuff going on here where I'm isolated. It's such a joy. I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you're all partakers with me of grace. Was every Christian in the first century, no matter how far away they were physically from Paul, were they partakers with him of grace? Yes or no? Absolutely, or they wouldn't be Christians. That's what Christians do. We're under God's grace. But all of them, no matter how far away they might have been physically, he said, we're all together. We're all one. And I know you are, and that gives me strength. And I, and I can look at my situation and I can know I'm not alone. Just physically, look in chapter two. You see this come out again and again in this, this, this book of Philippians. Chapter two, look at verse 19. I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. He may have been alone in, under house arrest. 
but he was right there in heart and spirit with his brethren. He goes on in verses 25 through 29 to say, I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard he was sick. He was sick almost to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I send him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Paul was connected to everybody. He knew he wasn't alone. He might have been sitting there pretty much alone physically, but I'm telling you right now, he was connected. Look what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved and longed for, brethren, he said, I'm longing for you. I, I want so much to be with you, but I can't right now. My beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. He was not alone. We move to Colossians chapter 2, the church of the first century. Look what he says. Colossians 2, 1, he says, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, he was separated from them, folks. He, he, wasn't, he was not with these people. But, but look, look how together they were, even though they weren't physically together. Verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches to the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He said, look, they haven't even seen my face. And all of those in Laodicea, I'm not there now, but you know what? We're knit together. And Karen knits or crochets an afghan. She takes that one thread of that one color and, and it gets all connected in and mixed in with the others and it forms this beautiful picture, this, this beautiful afghan. But the thing is, is that it's, it's tied to the others. It's part of the fabric. It's part of the makeup. It's not one strand by itself. Brethren, we gotta understand. We gotta understand that we are not alone. Look with me in 1 Thessalonians 2 as we wrap up from, from these epistles from Paul and indeed today's lesson. Although physical conflicts and circumstances may have us separated, had them separated, their hearts could be encouraged and assured that they were not alone, but spiritually one altogether in Christ Jesus. And as I said, this doesn't just go for physically alone goes for those of us who are psychologically alone thinking I'm the only one. Oh, it'd be so awful if I know nobody can understand what I'm going through. We isolate ourselves that way, maybe not physically, but just like Elijah isolated himself even from those who could have helped him, sometimes we do that. But the church isn't where that is supposed to happen. 1 Thessalonians 2, beginning at verse 17, look what it says, he says, but we brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, physically separated, look at his next line, not in heart. That is such an, if you don't have that highlighted or underlined in your Bible and you're somebody who does, take care of that now. Taken away from you for a short time in presence does not mean in heart, isn't that awesome? endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Sometimes we just get hindered. We are separated, but we're not alone. For what is, he says, our hope, our joy, 
or joy or crown of rejoicing. Paul says, what is the whole hope, joy, and crown of our being so happy? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? You're our glory and joy. They weren't physically together. Paul was a part of some. They were together in heart and they could be together in joy because they all knew they were not alone. Finally, in chapter three, verses six through 10, look what it says, same epistle. And again, we could cite many. He says, now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you, notice again, they're not together physically. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. That we're in this together, and brethren, even though we can't be together, it just rejoices my heart to know you're still standing strong. We're, we're in this together, always. You are not alone. And obviously, the one I didn't go over for time's sake, is that once you become a Christian, the Lord himself is always, 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 with you. Romans 8, 28 through 39, part of which Kirk read this morning during communion, but also Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, God said, never will I leave you or forsake you. We can forsake him, but he will never forsake us as long as we do not forsake him. While others could be cited at this point, the point is duly made. If you are a child of the living God, then in the words of the old Vince Gill song, you are never alone. Do not let Satan get into your psyche. Whether you're physically alone or psychologically alone or in the struggle you feel you're alone, do not let Satan get in there and convince you that you are spiritually alone because you are never alone. Not once, not at all, and never again, no matter what Satan with all of his big black heart wants to try to destroy you with. We began this morning's lesson talking about the show alone where they drop off contestants in these remote environments, harsh conditions, all by themselves, isolated for months on end to survive both physically and mentally. My question as we conclude is what about you this morning? Do you feel like in your life this morning that you have been dropped off and abandoned in harsh, in a harsh and unforgiving environment, your circumstances? Do you feel like maybe you're running out of time and the resources to survive? You're almost at your wits end? Hard to survive the storm going on in your world and all of the harshness, you just feel abandoned. Well, let me tell you something, if you've never obeyed the gospel by being baptized into Christ, then it's understandable. Because the Bible says that if you're not in Christ, you are without Christ, without hope, and without God in the world, Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. So if you're not baptized in Christ, it's pretty easy to see why you're feeling overwhelmed and abandoned and all of that. We'd love to baptize you into Christ so that you'll know that you're never alone. But even if you have obeyed the gospel and you've been born again, 
into the family of God. Even as we saw with Elijah, with the apostles and even the Lord himself, sometimes the Lord's people, the strongest of the Lord's people, just simply need to be reminded they're not alone. They need to be strengthened in their faith and understanding of the fact that when you belong to God and you are one of his people, you are never, ever, ever alone again. You don't have to be. Don't run like Elijah away from those who can help and comfort and love you when you struggle. This morning, if you'd be baptized into Christ to become a member of his family, or if you just need the prayers of the church because it's overwhelming, you just need for us to give you a hug and pray for you and work with you and share your burden. Really, don't stay alone. God didn't design you that way. Come to the front right now as we stand and sing and let us know how we can help carry your burden.